Welcome to Molotov Now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is Sherian. And we are the hosts of Molotov Now on the Channel Zero Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us on this episode. If you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AL1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. We are excited to have a fellow comrade for the Channel Zero Network on the podcast today. Pearson, formerly of Coffee with Comrades, is joining us to talk about group dynamics, conflict resolution, and burnout. All important and relevant topics at this time. As emotions run high and tensions build in between people, it is important to take time to remember why we are fighting and remind ourselves that the means must be the ends. That is, we must commit ourselves to learning and practicing transformative justice, de-escalation, and mediation techniques now as a process of liberating ourselves. These are valuable skills for us to carry into our organizing spaces. We have a great conversation with longtime organizer and podcaster Pearson about these hard topics and get to the bottom of what we can do to safeguard our movements against internal and external threats and challenges. We will be getting into some news and upcoming events in the Pacific Northwest. We have some updates from our newsletter, The Communique, as well as a few pressing mutual aid requests. That's up next, but first, a message from our sponsors. As protests heat up, the Channel Zero Network has some reminders on how to stay safe while out in the streets. Bring buddies and don't let them out of the range of your voice. Write a legal aid number on your body so you can get help if you get arrested. Be sure to know your buddies' legal names and birthdays. You'll need these to help find them if they're arrested. When moving around, walk, don't run. Stick together. Turn off your phone while out in the streets to avoid surveillance of your location and so as not to have your unlocked phone taken by the authorities or other bad actors. Try your best not to stick out in a crowd. Cover up tattoos with clothing or body paint. Cops will use footage from the protest to try to identify you. Wear clothes that are good for moving quickly. Avoid wearing jewelry and wear closed-toed shoes. Wear your mask at all times, even if you're talking to someone, in order to guard yourself against surveillance, COVID-19, pepper spray, and tear gas. Avoid wearing contact lenses. Bring goggles of some kind in case of tear gas or pepper spray. Consider wearing bike helmets as police often cause head injuries with batons and other weapons. Don't take photos or videos of people doing anything illegal or with their faces uncovered. Whenever possible, film the cops, not the protesters. Only put water in your eyes. Don't use milk or baking soda or anything else. Clean water is the safest thing to use at a protest. If possible, bring a water bottle to drink from and a water bottle to flush out the eyes of any comrades who are maced or tear gassed. And white comrades are encouraged to follow the lead of black and brown comrades as they bear the brunt of state brutality. Follow Unicorn Riot and Channel Zero Network member It's Going Down for ongoing updates. The Channel Zero Network sends you all solidarity. Stay safe out there and never stop fighting for a better world.
upcoming events. Yeah. At Pipsqueak in Seattle, on Monday, December 4th, from 1 to 4 p.m., a Know Your Rights for Restaurant Workers workshop. On Wednesday, December 6th, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., Queer Slash Trans Art Jam. And Sunday, December 10th, from 12.30 p.m. to 5 p.m., Queer Sewing and Mending Day. Also at Pipsqueak, on Sunday, December 10th, at 6 p.m., come learn about the International Solidarity Movement. In Bremerton, on December 9th, at 333 North Callow, the Chuck will be starting the season strong with their all-ages show, Winter Harshfest. Lineup will include The Accused AD, Wretched of the Earth, Generation Decline, Disease, Narc, Doodledge, Decapitate the Disciples, What's Dysmorphia, Death Cave, Baptation, Kill Cam, and Love. Doors open at 4pm for $25 a head. Come enjoy these amazing bands at this awesome all-ages venue that includes a bar with ID on December 9th. In Portland, on December 8th, from 3 to 8 p.m. at Mood PDX at 3808 North Williams, there will be an anti-Zionist Hanukkah pop-up. Come enjoy art, games, snacks, and a raffle, featuring local Portland Jewish, Palestinian, and other Swanen vendors. Stick around for the menorah lighting and, r- and the raffle for Palestine. Winner will be called at 7 p.m. Also in Portland, on December 2nd, at the Filipino Payanahan Center at 1537 Southeast Morrison Street, there will be the Havdala Variety Show Fundraiser. Doors at 5.30, event starts at 6. There will be a suggested donation of 5 or more dollars. Join them for the Jewish ritual of Havdala followed by a variety show blending together entertainment, Palestinian political education, and a moment to mourn the lives of Palestinian martyrs lost. Zionism not welcome. All proceeds will go to the Swana Rose Center. Masks required. For more information on Havdalah, go to tinyurl.com backslash Havdalah info. That's H-A-V-D-A-L-A-H-I-N-F-O. It's the Good morning. We would also like to share an announcement with our comrades from the Channel Zero Network. Some media, who will be celebrating their 20th birthday with an international tour of their two decades of subversion riot porn, Jamboree, I'm your host, Stimulator, all capped off with a December 21st online live stream. If you're in any of these locations, be sure to check them out in person. What's up, Agitator? Tour dates will be on December 2nd in Bloomington. December 14th in Baltimore, December December 14th at Belo Horizonte, on December 15th they will be at Porto Alegre, Philadelphia, and Montreal, December 16th in New York, December 18th in Hamilton, December 19th in Toronto, and December 21st for the online live stream. But what if I have to work? I don't want to get fucking fired. That's easy, agitator. That's Colin sick. Come celebrate 20 years with these anarchist media moguls. Find them at sub.media. And more in the world of online events, we have the third annual Militant Kindergarten 
starting in January. It's a 15-week seminar on anarchist theory, strategy, and militancy using social anarchism and organization by the Anarchist Federation of Rio de Janeiro. Audiobooks and study notes are available. If you're interested in taking this course, please contact Studies at gmail.com. That is E-S-P-E-C-I-F-I-S-M-O studies at gmail.com. And in mutual aid requests, we have a message from our comrade Ulysses. Help keep Ulysses housed. The message reads, Hello, I'm an indigenous butch lesbian located in Tacoma who needs immediate help paying for my $1,200 rent. I'm awaiting hiring with the state, but my bills are going to be due before I see a check. I currently do community care tasks throughout the area and Uber Eats. However, the income from these is not enough to cover my expenses into next month. Please consider donating even a little. $10 gets my cat cat food or sharing my post if that's not possible at this time. Thank you. You can Venmo them at Ghost of Mars or cash app them at MarsBenIs. That's MarsBenIs. In local news, we have recently noticed multiple announcements for two meetings of a new group here in Grace Harbor, Washington. It uses the conspicuous name America First, a term with a long and brutal legacy steeped in xenophobia and fascism. This is a troubling development in a county with too many fascist politicians as it is. If we are seeing a wave of America First meetings, that means that local conservatives here are not even satisfied with fascistic policies being enacted by their beloved political figures, ones they themselves voted into office not but a few years ago. They are stuck in the electoral trap, but the historical and current links to the far-right neo-Nazis and white nationalists is still upsetting. We cannot stand by idly and let groups like this openly organize in public in our county. Direct action and sabotage is needed to shut down their meetings and publicly shame the participants. The Harbor Rat Report recently published an excellent article on the history of the phrase, connections to current neo-Nazi circles, and considered the future of fascism in the 21st century. The article weaves the story of America first from its roots in anti-British nativism in 1884 and works its way through to its use by candidates for president of both political parties in 1916, onto its use as a slogan by the KKK in the 1920s. The article ends with the racist and xenophobic use of the term by Nazi sympathizers and supporters prior to and after the entry into World War II. It was revived in 2016 by two candidates, first by Donald Trump and secondly by David Duke the former Grand Wizard of the KKK. The phrase is also used by white nationalists and neo-Nazis in the country, such as Nick Fuentes of the America First Political Action Conference. He has asserted that Muslim speech is not covered by First Amendment protections and said on his show in 2017, Who runs the media? Globalists. Time to kill the globalists. Along with the quote, I want people that run CNN to be arrested and deported or hanged because this is deliberate. For those not in the know, Globalist is a term used to code the word Jew in white nationalist circles. Following these and other comments, as well as his public attendance of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, which resulted in the death of activist Heather Hare, his employer and publisher, Right Side Broadcasting Network, parted ways with Fuentes in August 2017. In 2021, Fuentes was among the coalition of far-right individuals and groups who participated in the rallies that led up to the U.S. Capitol attack on January 6th. The FBI is currently investigating a large transfer of Bitcoin on December 8th to a group of far-right activists which included Fuentes. 
Fuentes received approximately $681,750 worth of Bitcoin in the transaction as valued at the time. Two days before the attack, he was also quoted as saying, What can you and I do to a state legislator besides kill them? We should not do that. I'm not advising that. But I mean, what else can you do, right? The article then sums up the recent rise of fascism globally as a new forming movement of transnational fascism. Alternatively, this movement has also been termed transnational white supremacy, or more poetically, the Reconquest, a nod to the Reconquista crusade by the Christians to reclaim Spain from Muslim rule in the Middle Ages. The article concludes as follows. This global fascist movement intends to overthrow all democratic institutions and replace them with localized autocracies based on mutually assured oppression of all non-white individuals across the world. They have no problem with borders. They have problems with brown people. They don't care about immigration. They want ethnostates, with black and brown states enslaved and exploited by the white ones. In America, this looks like American flags and Christian crosses children saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day at school, and police at every corner. The fascists of the future will use these instruments as their litmus test to detect the enemy within. They will use the justice system and federal government to subject everyone to the most extreme Christian white nationalist ideologies. They will oppress minorities and declare queer people child abusers, then declare that child abusers need to be put to death. They will enact their own holocausts. Their plan is called Project 2025, and it is being actively pushed by the most powerful coalition of right-wing organizations in the history of the country. In county election results, it is turning out to be a tight election for mayor here in Aberdeen, although both candidates lost votes over their original counts in the primary, so that is heartening. Only about 18.5% of registered voters participated in the election, according to the auditor. The most recent results from the Grace Harbor County Auditor's Office show that Doug Orr led the race by eight votes over Debbie Pieraccini, the same margin he was left with after last Thursday's count, when he bumped his lead up from the two-vote margin he held after the November 7th count. Another 300 ballots have been counted for the mayor's race since November 9th. Orr's vote total so far is 1,356, compared to Pieraccini's 1,348. This means that by any stretch of the imagination, no one has the authority to lead, since this process can hardly be called democratic, involving only 2,700 votes for the mayoral race. So take that into account when reading about the new mayor. They have no real authority. They have no mandate. They have little support. They are weak. This should inform our actions going forward. We need to appeal to those who have discarded the electoral system as a route to change, and show them another way. After years of planning and about one year of development, Blue Zones, an initiative that aims to, quote, boost longevity and happiness in Grace Harbor County based on lifestyle principles from around the world, is ready to begin on nine projects they have identified as progressing towards that goal. Chris Fry, the local executive director of this nationwide campaign, plans to host a kickoff event at local Blue Zones Advocate Summit Pacific Medical Center in order to inform the local populace what to expect. Since these projects were drawn up privately and behind closed doors, most people are unaware about the, quote, changes to the food system and other plans that Blue Zones has developed. Nick Butner, a co-founder of Blue Zones LLC, will be a guest speaker at the event. His brother, Dan, founded the company almost two decades ago after he set out on a 2004 National Geographic expedition across the globe to pinpoint the specific aspects of lifestyle and environment that lead to longer living. His team located five geographic areas with the highest percentage of centenarians, or people over 100 years old. Loma Linda, California, Nicoya, Costa Rica, 
Sardinia, Italy, Icaria, Greece, and Okinawa, Japan. Those areas were dubbed Blue Zones. Further research into these claims have proved them to be dubious at best and agenda-based at worst. Saul Justin Newman from the Biological Data Science Institute and Australian National University has taken a deeper look at this data and the results are jaw-dropping. From the abstract, the observation of individuals attaining remarkable ages and their concentration in the geographic subregions, or blue zones, has generated considerable scientific interest. Proposed drivers of remarkable longevity include high vegetable intake, strong social connections, and genetic markers. Here we reveal new predictors of remarkable longevity and supercentarian status. In the United States, a supercentarian status is predicted by the absence of vital registration. The state-specific introduction of birth certificates is associated with a 69-82% to 82% fall in the number of supercentenarian records. In Italy, which has more uniform and vital registration, remarkable longevity is instead predicted by low per capita incomes and a short life expectancy. Finally, the designated blue zones of Sardinia, Okinawa, and Icaria corresponded to regions with low incomes, low literacy, high crime rate, and short life expectancy relative to the national average. As such, relative poverty and short lifespan constitute unexpected predictors of centenarian and supercentenarian status, and support a primary role of fraud and error in generating remarkable human age records. The newsletter then goes on to break down the various ways that the data used to reach the Blue Zones diet's conclusion is inherently flawed. Take the Adventists of Loma Linda, California. Male Adventists live about seven years longer than other white Californians, and this is ascribed to their lifestyle. The Adventist Church recommends being vegetarian, although not all Adventists follow that stricture. But Mormons in California and Utah appear to have about the same increase in life expectancy as the Adventists, and they are not vegetarians. So why aren't Mormons on the Blue Zones list? Is it because of an agenda? The company Blue Zones was recently purchased by the healthcare wing of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, known as Advent Health, a parent company with its own controversies and a vested interest in promoting its lifestyle as a longevity cure. It is the largest not-for-profit Protestant health provider in the U.S. Despite these flaws in the data, Dan Buettner eventually published a book on the subject in 2008, and the company began piloting the concept in American cities. They applied the principles first to a small town in Minnesota, then moved to the beach communities of California, and on to Iowa. Today, Blue Zones is active in about two dozen communities across the country, including five in Washington State. Walla Walla and Spanaway, where the company has implemented projects, and Mason, Lewis, and Grace Harbor counties, where ideas are still being developed. Grace Harbor County stacks up as one of the unhealthiest in the state based on life expectancy and quality, according to the 2022 County Health Rankings and Roadmaps from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The county has higher rates of smoking and obesity than the statewide average, and fewer access opportunities to exercise by a factor of one-fifth. This makes it an excellent candidate for the Blue Zone's faulty data scheme. Those statistics were incorporated into Summit Pacific Medical Center's Community Health Needs Assessment for the next two years. The hospital played a large role in bringing Blue Zones to Grace Harbor County, including launching an initial study to see if the community was interested in the concept. The assessment was backed by a $25,000 contribution from the Grace Harbor Board of County Commissioners. Fry, who lives in Hoquiam, has spent about one year as executive director of the local project. He spent that time reaching out to local governments, nonprofits, agencies, other leaders, and people from different facets of the community. A similar group met at a summit held in Aberdeen this summer. 
They exchanged ideas about potential projects for improvements to public spaces and food systems, which then bounced back and forth between Grace Harbor and a National Blue Zones team, ultimately whittling a long list down to nine projects that were chosen by the Blue Zones team, not representative of the ideas of the community partners. The newsletter then details the countywide plans that Blue Zones has for our community, ranging from the built environment to food policy. They plan to use this faulty data to guide the development of the county, among others. In Aberdeen, police gas a mentally ill man. After a two and a half hour standoff, the Aberdeen Police Department arrested a 49 year old man with mental health challenges who had broken into a vacant home. According to the police, they heard the man yelling and breaking items when they arrived. They could see him and recognize the man from, quote, several prior law enforcement contacts. They claimed that when they spoke to him, he threatened to kill any officer who attempted to come inside. After trying to negotiate the man's exit, the officers eventually decided it was best to deploy OC spray into the room he was in. After about 10 minutes of warning, that's exactly what they did. This was the best of the Aberdeen police had to offer after almost three hours of negotiation attempts with a clearly mentally ill person in crisis. Despite needing mental health care, he was booked into the Aberdeen City Jail for burglary first degree, malicious mischief second degree, obstructing a law enforcement officer, and resisting arrest. The county's request for proposals for a cold weather shelter went unanswered last month, making the likelihood of anyone opening a shelter this year incredibly low. The application, which asks for proposals for cold-weather emergency services, such as a congregate shelter, hotel vouchers, and more individualized options like tiny homes or pallet shelters, on September 6th, and left the application open until October 23rd, but did not receive any applications. Services were expected to begin this month. Since there is still $530,000 in state and county funding for for these services, County commissioners have agreed to move toward expanding existing contracts that do not involve a congregate shelter, things like hotel-slash-motel vouchers and street outreach programs. Grace Harbor County Public Health confirmed with the Washington State Department of Commerce that those are suitable uses for the funds, which include $160,000 in emergency housing funds from the state, which will expire in 2025, and $370,000 in county document recording fees that are not time-sensitive. Heating recommendations from public health, county commissioners suggested sending an extra $250,000 to Coastal Community Action Program's hotel and motel voucher program, as well as $100,000 to Chaplains on the Harbor to expand its day center and street outreach programs. That would be a good start, at least to show we're trying to spend the money that we have appropriately. And while we don't and while we don't have a shelter, we'll try to house as many as we can in the hotel motel situation. And utilizing Chaplin Street Outreach Program, I think, will be beneficial, District 3 Commissioner Vicki Raines said. Even these amounts will not be finalized until the commissioners meet again after this month. As the cold weather has already arrived, many are wondering what is taking so long. This is unfortunately not a new phenomenon. As winter occurs every year, and the local fascists have been pushing against shelters within Aberdeen city limits for years. CCAP claims that this amount would more than double their current amount of rooms to a potential total of 30 rooms. With hundreds in need of warm shelter this winter, it fails to amount to much in the face of such need. The program prioritizes people who are medically fragile and vulnerable, or households with children, pregnancies, or life-threatening illnesses. These non-congregate shelter options are great for those who can attain them, demonstrating a higher level of care and attention paid to those in a consistent hotel room for the winter. The number of people exiting this program into permanent housing was much higher than any other emergency housing service offered last year. But seeing as it only covers a small percentage of people in need, it is clearly insufficient. Providing emergency shelter during the winter months is part of Grace Harbor County's five-year plan to address homelessness, which was published in 2019. 
but two of the commissioners and the Aberdeen mayor and several city council members have pushed back hard against the existence of a shelter in city limits, voting last year to outright ban one. The extra dollars for the program at Chaplains will not include any overnight shelter options either, as they will simply expand their day shelter hours and offer their social service engagement services. They claim their decision has nothing to do with new restrictions voted into place in Westport in October. The ordinance required chaplains to apply for a permit to run the shelter, keep a daily log with names of all sheltered guests, and give the mayor authority to determine the shelter's maximum capacity. The city began to draft those regulations earlier this year after the county awarded extra funding to chaplains to expand overnight capacity at the shelter last winter which many residents objected to at public meetings. That extra funding was available because other shelters fell through due to problems with location after the Aberdeen City Council asked that a shelter not be operated within the city limits. It is clear that the hate of the unhoused is strong in the right wing, who voice their views at these city council meetings not often attended by the unhoused themselves. The Moore Right Group, another social services organization, applied to host a 7-12 bed shelter in one of its residential houses last year, but concerns over city code and occupancy snagged the proposal. Tanika Watford, the group's executive director, said that because past shelter applications hadn't yielded any county funding, the group decided this isn't something that makes sense for us to keep pursuing. Without an organization made up of people living in these circumstances, there is no outcome that the current leadership will come up with other than total eradication of the unhoused. Forcing people to live outside throughout a bitter northwestern winter is cruel and inhumane. Those who want this to be the state of affairs want nothing less than the death of our friends on the streets. No one else is coming to save us. We must organize among ourselves and form our own counter-institutions to resist the efforts of those in positions of power and advance our own agenda of housing for all. Now it's time for our Radical News Roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized, educational, 501c3, nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. November 1st, mass protest in The Hague calls out Israeli war crimes. November 3rd, let me pay my taxes, says incarcerated industry worker. November 4th, National Free Palestine Protest in D.C. November 5th, Palestine Can't Afford Silence. November 5th, Die-In at Raytheon Compound in Tucson calls out complicity in Gaza. November 6th, Target's critics call out chicanery. A new report contradicts official reasons behind closings. November 8th, National Day of Protest Against Police Brutality at Ruins of the 3rd Precinct. November 10th, over, over 10,500 killed in one month as Israel continues its war on Palestine. November 13th, cultural conferences return to Brazil without fear or repression. November 14th, Gaza-based unicorn riot contributor speaks on Israel bombing his home. November 15th, Islamophobia and the weaponization of anti-Semitism. November 16th, hundreds rally outside Colorado-based defense contractor, call for divestment and accountability. November 16th, pro-Palestinian activists take over Amsterdam Central Station. November 22nd, FBI labels anti-fascists and anti-racists as violent extremists. November 24th, calls for Israel boycotts and ceasefire disrupt Black Friday shoppers. November 25th, 
Minneapolis city councilors reject recruitment deal with cops, accuse Mayor Frey of fear tactics. November 26th, cop city defendant Victor Puertes has been held for months without trial, but his community hasn't forgotten him. November 28th, white vigilante appeals murder conviction, seeks release from jail. It's going down, and you're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying, there is no running, there is no hiding. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. October 30th. Neo-Nazi groups are attempting to worm their way into rallies against the war in Gaza. October 30th. Against Genocide, a Palestinian Solidarity Panel. October 31st. We will not be intimidated. Boise mobilizes against neo-Nazis. October 31st. Protests and blockades in solidarity with Palestine continue as deadly attacks on Gaza escalate. November 1st. This is America number 190. Block Cop City Tour and Mobilization. November 2nd. In contempt number 34, Marius Mason moved, Kevin Rashid faces more repression. November 4th, Oakland rallies to block boat carrying Israeli armed shipment. November 4th, Palestinian solidarity activists call for continued port blockades in Tacoma to stop weapon shipments. November 7th, the state is a racket, repression in the battle to stop cop city. November 7th, what's on the horizon for the stop cop city movement? November 7th, Palestine. Reminders of what solidarity means. November 7th. Blockades, demonstrations, and direct actions continue in solidarity with Palestine. November 8th. Community elders blockade the entrance of the Cop City construction site in Atlanta. November 8th. Critical reflections on recent block-the-boat actions in Tacoma. November 8th. Notes on the EZLN's latest announcement from Chiapas. November 8th. Pipeline fighter grandfather arrested after blocking MVP drilling at Elk River Crossing. November 9th, Palestine will be free, new zine and poster for distribution. November 10th, eight years since the detention of Fidencio Aldama. November 10th, Canadian Tire Fire number 65, Palestine Solidarity, Wave of Office Occupations, and Drug User Liberation Front Raid and Arrests. November 11th, a frontline report from the West Bank of Occupied Palestine. November 11th, Invitation to the First International Gathering of Anarchists and Anti-Authorian Practices in Tijuana, Mexico. November 12th. Repression Tech Hub shut down in Hamilton, Ontario in solidarity with Palestine. November 14th. Police attack protesters as hundreds march against Cop City in Atlanta, halt construction. November 14th. Barricades, rocks, and blockades shut down defense contractor Raytheon in El Segundo. November 14th. Banner drops in Ypsilante and Ann Arbor in solidarity with Stop Cop City. November 15th. Report back on jail vigil outside DeKalb County Jail following Block Cop City mobilization. November 19th. Remembering the life and times of revolutionary and former political prisoner Ed Mead. November 19th. Mass protests and direct actions in solidarity with Palestine grow into student occupations and blockades. November 19th. Report back from Running Down the Walls event in Philadelphia. November 19th. International call for a New Year's Eve noise demonstrations. November 20th. Interview with anarchist prisoner and Akupache member 
Jorge York Escoval. November 21st. Letter from Miguel Peralta. 101 years since the assassination of Ricardo Flores Mengon. November 21st. Hurricane Otis. Mutual aid and multiple disasters in Guerrero. November 22nd. Fire Anarchist Prisoner Solidarity Number 17. November 23rd. Portland mobilizes and shuts down anti-trans hate group with links to the far right. November 25th. Indigenous activists detained in Oaxaca following gathering on political prisoners. November 25th. Kite Line. Block Cop City. November 26th. Statements on the recent arrests in El Ojochion de Flores Megon. November 26th. Don't panic. Stay tight. Frontline reflections on Block Cop City. November 27th. Report back from Montreal counter-demonstration in defense of trans youth. November 27th. Oakland tenants fighting eviction picket KP Market threatening boycott. November 29th. Report back from an autonomous demo to disrupt Black Friday in solidarity with Palestine. November 29th. Contending with the present and building a future for anti-fascism in the Pacific Northwest. November 29th. Israel is committing genocide. Crime thought is everything that evades control. Crime Think is a rebel alliance. Crime Think is a banner for anonymous collective action. Crime Think is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. Crime Think is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at crimethink.com. November 3rd, strategizing for Palestinian solidarity, expanding the toolkit from demands to direct action. November 10th, shutting down the port of Tacoma, reflections from the Salish Sea. November 15th, how they stopped work at the Raytheon facility. Report on a day of blockading. November 17th. Revisiting the Smash EDO campaign, a pressure campaign targeting an arms manufacturer. And finally, November 26th. Back to the Future, the return of the ultra-liberal right in Argentina. That's all for this month in news. Be sure to follow Channel Zero Network for more frequent updates on these stories and more. Up next, we will have our conversation with Pearson. But first, here is The Power of Friendship by the Window Smashing Job Creators. Hit it!
itself is a pirate selling each other out for utopia to sell. We are fighting for a world where wars are abolished while we are under attack. So first we'll seize our hopes and dreams, then fields and factories, and redistribute the means of slack. When we kill God with the power of friendship and of war, Welcome back to Molotov Now. Today we're joined by Pearson, formerly of Coffee with Comrades. Although it was recently announced that he will be ending the podcast this month to pursue more writing and to be more present in his own life and career, we wanted to bring him on today to talk a bit about collective processing of conflict, trauma, burnout, and maybe talk a little bit about the future of Channel Zero Network as a media collective. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. We hope that this conversation can be used by people in conflictual situations as a guide for how to build processes for conflict resolution that do not keep the issue in the realm of the individual, but can bring these processes out into the open to be dealt with collectively. I think this can reduce the harm caused by individual infighting and abuse and can hold people accountable for their actions to a greater degree than individualized processes can. So for our audience who might not be familiar, Pearson, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, what's up, y'all? My name's Pearson. Uh, I, uh, oh gosh, I wear a bunch of hats. Um, I used to do a show. I'm wearing many hats. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's cold. You know, you got to wear all of the hats. <laughs> um, otherwise, your your dome piece is going to get too cold and your brain's going to get all foggy. Um, no, I mean, I I, uh, I used to do a podcast, um, which is so weird to say now because I'm literally talking into a mic doing a podcast with uh, the two of you. But um, yeah, I used to do a podcast called Coffee with Comrades. We put out over 200 episodes, had a good time. It's all online. You can go check it out uh, if you are interested um, in that sort of thing. Um, Molotov now is a, is a, uh, I guess a sister show of, of um, coffee with comrades on the coffee on the uh, channel zero network, which is super dope. Um, and uh, I'm glad that we can have conversations like this uh, in perpetuity. Um, yeah. I have been organizing for, a long time. Um, I'm an anarchist. I'm a parent. I'm a professor. Uh, like I said, I wear I wear many hats. Awesome. So in our in our current political climate, and especially with the genocide occurring in Gaza, people are extremely heightened emotionally, understandably, and this inevitably leads to conflict in our spaces. This is especially true for large, more loose knit groups that may include people without much affinity and without much knowledge about the situation or even wrong assumptions about the nature of the oppression going on. I have personally seen this erupt into more conflict than almost any other issue. I don't know why that is, but if we're going to successfully liberate ourselves from toxic cycles of abuse, we need to be able to resolve these conflicts in our spaces when they turn up. Have you experienced anything along these lines in your spaces? Yeah, I mean, uh, totally. I mean, not necessarily around... Um, uh, the conflict in P 
Palestine. Um, I think that um, I have, for better or worse, been in, um, you know, situations and communities in which um, I am either uh, in broad agreement with people on that issue or like, are like the enemies of people on that, that issue, like very reactionary people. Right. So like um, generally speaking, I, I, you know, find myself in more or less, um, you know, affinity about uh, that particular conflict. But as far as like conflict generally, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's an inescapable facet of, um, trying to exist in community with people um you're inevitably going to have disagreements and unfortunately there are also times where like abuse happens and where manipulation happens and where like bad actors get involved in community spaces and try to tear them down either because they're part of the state or they are you know part of a um you know reactionary like street level movement it's trying to um you know sabotage and so i think that like being able to like identify th- those differences of like when you are having conflict with someone who you're broadly in agreement with in a, in a community space versus when you're having conflict with someone who is actively and unrepentantly abusing people or who is actively trying to sabotage like whatever it is you're trying to do is super important because like the methods that you deal with those two different types of conflict are necessarily very different. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I've mostly been concerned with like the internal group dynamics and how even when you do have affinity with someone, when emotions are heightened or when people are really tense or tired or burnt out or whatever it is, even just simple misunderstandings can turn into huge conflicts. And, you know, most of what I've seen written on the subject is aimed at individuals seeking resolution for Mm -hmm. like individual harm caused to them. But as anarchists, we know the value of collective processes of accountability and harm mitigation. How can we as anarchists acknowledge conflict and respond appropriately to it? Are there models that you're aware of that promote collective processes? Yeah, I mean, I I guess there's a handful of uh, zines that I've come across over the years or, you know, conversations that I've had with people over the years. But I I think generally, right, like the the kind of base model um, for trying to mediate uh, conflict in a, you know, large community space uh, is to start on a smaller level, right? To try and address like very directly with the person that you're beefing with or that you have a misunderstanding with and and to be as direct and um, specific about that issue as possible and try to address it on an, on an interpersonal basis. And when that doesn't pan out, which happens inevitably like uh the next real step then hopefully is to not try and um you know leave the group or tear away from it but to try to figure out what's at the heart of that that disagreement especially if it's like a really important one about strategy or about um you know an organization's uh general approach and so like i think that 
having people who are dedicated um, and, and have the tool set of doing mediation is really, really uh, helpful. Being able to have people who have some training in conflict resolution and can help um, address those issues as they arise and who are um, sort of the, the, the de facto uh, folks who get engaged in that work of trying to do de-escalating or, or mediation is is really, really vital uh, to the health and longevity of, of any social movement. Because otherwise things splinter and break off. And, and sometimes that happens and like, that's okay. Like that's an inevitable part of the struggle. But I think that, you know, whenever possible, being able to solve those issues, especially when people are um, still in a, in a headspace where they can be amenable and, and cordial with one another um, is, 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 you know, the optimal route um, to, to resolution. You know what I mean? So building on that, I would ask, what do you think we could do to possibly build a culture around the idea of the need for mediation and whatnot? Because I know in our experiences, it seems that we can have these tools in place. We can kind of have like a plan of what to do when conflict arises. But the biggest barricade we tend to run into is just the individual parties involved, just not wanting to take part in that process, whether totally. it be the victim or offender. Yeah, Totally. Yeah, I mean, and so often, right, like sometimes there's multiple offenders and and maybe one person does want to get engaged and, and like other people don't or, um, you know, what do you do in a situation where, um, you know, somebody has you know, experienced some kind of like assault or like sexual misconduct or harassment and like, how do you address that? Um, and I think that there are like, myriad ways to to potentially try and encounter it. But I think that to answer your question, a lot of it is contextual and like depends on whether people are active and and willing to set aside whatever difference it is that they, they that 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 kind of uh, sparked or initiated the conflict and actually try and bridge that gap. I think that sometimes uh people aren't uh, in that that space. And I think that like that's okay. Um, Cause I think that there is a real central tenet that I think is important, um, which is like voluntary association. Like we have a culture, I think in, especially like, you know, libertarian left spaces, um, anarchist spaces in particular of like willingly associating with people. Right. And if that, if you can't, like find that sort of affinity at all, then it's reasonable to to leave that situation or leave that space, right? Um, and so I think that on the one hand, like we shouldn't try to force or cajole or manipulate people into a mediation process if they're not willing to, right? But at the same time, I think your question is like, getting to the heart of how do we build a culture that encourages that type of interaction and, and fosters um, that sort of um, affinity. And that I think is the million dollar question. Cause I, I I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not sure there is a, you know, silver bullet to that. Um, but I think that, you know, one way to, to potentially start is to build these processes of, of accountability and of, of de-escalation and of mediation and of conflict resolution at the small scale and start 
practicing them actively in order to illustrate to folks that like they not only work on the small scale, but they can work on on the large scale so that there's that sort of institutional memory. There's that sense of trust. There's that sense of, oh, this isn't our first rodeo. We've done this before. The other thing that I would say um, that I think is is really critical is to like encourage folks to like um, recognize that in order to uh, forward, there are some types of conflict that like you can agree to disagree about or that you can go along with in ways that are, you know, more or less kind of like, uh, you know, like I don't agree with you, but I'll, I'll stand aside. I'm not going to like, you know, be a hardliner about this particular thing. And then there are, the, are so much for the tolerant left type. Arguments. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Totally. But then there's, there are also things that are like really bad, right? Like, like sexual assault, right? Like those are sorts of things that like need to be addressed. Right. And, and sometimes that means trying to have an accountability process in order to like address the harm that was, was done. And sometimes it means needing to drive a motherfucker out of, out of a space because they're no longer welcome there. And like, it's going to look differently depending on, the, the context, you know, but I think it, you know, again, to get to the heart of your question, if we're trying to build affinity, then then starting on the small scale, creating those structures and then illustrating how they work will will build trust in that in that network and in that um, that power of mediation that can can solve small problems and can hopefully address larger issues as well. How would you describe the difference between like large scale and small scale? Where do those lines break down? Yeah, I mean, again, I like I, I'm not sure if there's a um, clear delineation, right? And it's going to look differently for different people, right? Because for some people, you know, something like, oh, I encountered this particular microaggression on somebody using ableist language. And I think that they should be called into an accountability process, right? And other people might be like, okay, like they said, you know, some they said they said a word that people use all the time um, that that isn't like a slur, but it's like a, a normal word that people often use. Is it really necessary for like an entire accountability process that to be to happen? Or can we just have a conversation about it? Or is it something like, oh, somebody like used like more harsh uh like 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 language to describe a, a certain people group like that might be something that you want to like address or you know like building up even higher um this person keeps uh making weird remarks to some of the femme folk in our our, our organization and it's making them uncomfortable we need to like have a intervention and talk with this person and try to to get to the the heart of what's going on and why they're not picking up on things um, that are are clearly being expressed that there's not like an interest like mutual interest there or is it like really really intense like somebody is um actively uh, like uh abusing someone um like like intimate partner violence or um you know some kind of manipulation that's happening amongst the group where one person is like hoarding uh power for his or herself uh rather than um you know sharing it amongst the 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 entirety of the group either by like accruing social capital or perhaps like maybe your org like takes donations and 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 they're the only person who has um the bank account information right like those are kinds of like larger like issues that probably ought to be addressed and then 
it's I think it's up to each kind of group to sort of determine where that line is for themselves. And so like my line may not look the same as yours and it may not look the same at, to a listener's. But I think that as much as possible, being able to have those kinds of conversation about like what is an offense that's worthy of you know, having a, a, a de-escalation or a conflict resolution um, is, is useful. Because again, if we have that language to articulate and identify where those uh, red lines are ahead of time, then we'll know when and where to engage with these processes when they become necessary. Yeah, I think the case-by-case nature of it is really important. Obviously, these skills are important to learn for organizers. I know in one case in particular, recently in one of the larger groups that I'm a part of, there was um, a bit of a misunderstanding that turned into a conflict, um, perhaps needlessly, but, um, you know, the conflict arose and people left the group over it. And I reached out to them and we tried to organize a a little smaller group that was going to deal with this. And it was the first time this group has had any sort of conflict. So we hadn't really developed any processes or commitments to participate in anything like this so i got whoever i could in the group to participate and we laid out some ground rules and you know everyone voiced their needs and concerns and it just got to the point where the person who had originated the conflict was themselves being so conflictual that other people started to drop out of the group because they didn't feel safe and it got to the point where we needed like a neutral mediator to come in and that is like $600 a session, you know, and there's no way we can afford that for this little, ad, well, this big ad hoc group or whatever. But so being able to get that training and spread it throughout your networks is crucial. I would also add with like the nature of the conflict itself, there is an issue of how would you even call a neutral Uh, what would you even call a neutral mediator? But like, what would that even look like in that particular instance? Um, without getting too much in the details of like the group and what had happened and whatnot, it's kind of like the same idea of like being politically neutral. It's just like, what does that mean? Who does that serve? Totally. Especially when you're dealing with a a topic such as what we were dealing with, um, and just throw other examples out. So say like, whether it's a, uh, case uh, about, about uh, sexual assault or you know Israel and Palestine or um, would be I don't know just other hot topic issues that have as far as from a liberatory space a clear kind of definitive side but we're still trying to get people to learn and grow from you know because everybody's kind of on their own journeys not everybody's kind of at the same like a level of radicalism or or however you want to phrase it um we're all learning yeah, yeah. and obviously there's some conflicts that aren't going to be resolved what tips do you have for when and how to make that determination as to what can be effectively resolved and what is a fundamental difference that can't be resolved yeah. How do you know if you can fix the situation or if like somebody just needs to be kicked from the group? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just want to echo what you said about um, neutrality, right? Like there isn't real like this idea of neutrality. Um, and this is something I express to my students all the time. Isn't real. Like everything is like 
is constantly kind of the lines are, are being drawn in different ways. Like it's very difficult to find ways to be truly unbiased or truly neutral. Right. And I think that if, if anything, we should own our biases and be frank about how we want to aspire towards and, and aim for more liberatory, more transformative, more revolutionary horizons and aspirations. And that like, that should be the end goal of mediation is to try to create the opportunities for, for liberation and transformation rather than, you know, quote unquote fairness, right? Like to really, to, to really be actively committed towards justice. I think it, it requires us to be biased towards liberation. Does that make sense? But I guess to answer your question, right, like what are the hard lines? I think that like there's got to be caveats, right? Like there's got to be exceptions and carve outs. Um, You know, if people are totally set on belittling or ignoring the humanity of others, that's got to be a hard line, right? Like um, if people are unrepentant and and unwilling to engage in a process of um, accountability or of, of conflict resolution, then that probably should be a red flag as well, that this person is not, you know, engaging in good faith. If, you know, the, the situation is, oh, like this, this one person will say they're a masculine person because they almost always are a, a masculine person who has has harassed or or has been kind of pestering um, a femme person for to like go out on a date with them. And they're like part we're, they're all part. We're all part of the same like affinity group. Right. And it gets to the point where this woman who's being pestered doesn't feel comfortable with having that person, that masculine person continuously coming to the group because, you know, it's annoying. It's potentially triggering, uh, you know, especially if this person has had negative experiences like this in the past of, or being, you know, forced to, to engage uh, with people who like, they're not interested in engaging with. Right. What do you do in that situation? Right. And I think that in those kinds of situations, again, it, it does come down uh, to a large, in a large sense to, to contextuality of trying to like, get to the bottom of like, um, hey, what's going on? How can we try and address this? And trying to, as much as possible, pull people to the table and have a frank and earnest conversation about it. But I think that like, you know, hard lines, like if someone, if it goes beyond like harassment and somebody like, you know, rapes someone, like that's probably grounds for driving them out of the, the, the organization. You know, I have seen uh, on... Way too many occasions, uh, groups that are more than happy to keep rapists and, and uh, serial abusers in their ranks because they're uh, probably like, um, you know, they have a lot of social capital, they're popular, or because they're good organizers, because they're they're veterans, they have experience. And so those folks get away with those kinds of uh, behaviors. And I think that like, that's got to be a hard line, right? Again, if our, if our goal in the end is transformation and is liberation, then those aren't the kinds of people that we want to be involved with. And I think pushing those people out um, is, is, is necessary and natural. The last thing that I'll say is that like, there are situations where we can find affinity with people whose politics we don't necessarily agree with. Right. You know, I have done a lot of union organizing, which which means that I have dealt with a fuck ton of liberals in my time and it is exhausting, but 
I have never organized and will never organize with fascists. Like that's a hard fucking line. Right. Um, and so like, there's this, this kind of, I think there are clearer demarcations depending upon the type of offense that someone might've caused and the type of politics that somebody might be entering into a space with um, that, that might be hard lines for saying, no, I'm not going to work with them or they're not going to be welcome in our spaces. Does, it, does that, does that kind of scan? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's those, those middle cases where, yeah, that's it's, where it gets it's on the border <laughs> where things are gray. Yeah. They get real sticky. <clears throat> Have you had any personal experiences, successful or unsuccessful with group conflict uh, resolution? Listen, homie, I wish I could tell you that I had uh, more successful experiences than the negative experiences, but unfortunately a lot of them have been negative. I think that this kind of work is is so essential, but it's also so fucking difficult because I think that to a large extent we have a we have a a propensity especially on the left to dig our our, our heels in and to be very uh dogmatic or search for a certain sense of like ideological purity. And this has happened in spaces that I've been in. You know, I don't want to air anybody's dirty laundry, but I, uh, you know, the, the I, I know that those are also situations that y'all can identify with. And I think that there is a sense uh, that people often feel like it's not worth investing the time and energy and space in. And I think if we're going to combat that, we have to like build the types of networks and communities uh, that, that, that really center relationships so that people aren't so quick to throw in the towel. Um, because the, the times that I have seen it be successful are when there are groups of people who are genuinely, sincerely committed to each other and to the success of um, that whatever group they might be engaged in. So um, an example that I have seen that was successful um, because I would like to end, you know, if, if possible on a, on a happier note than a dour one. When I lived in Orlando, I had a uh, um, small community of folks who were interested in doing uh, anti-fascist organizing and who were flyering. It was it was in the wake of um, the Trump election. And so a lot of people were really activated and motivated to engage in that type of work and came to find out that there was a person in the group who uh, had a, I guess you could say had a pretty regressive idea about um, how to uh, engage with fascists in the streets, right? And and thought that the best way to to do this was to simply talk to the talk try try to talk to them, try to de-escalate uh, with them rather than try and confront them and make fascism untenable, right? Through direct action and through direct means, right? And so a lot of us were like. We're not doing that. <laughs> like, that's not what we're here for, buddy. We're here to to deplatform the Nazis, right? And what we agreed to, right, 
um, as an affinity group was that like, we are going to try and give each other the space and the benefit of the doubt to act in a way that is consistent with our own conscience. And that that is, you know, not condemning others for the types of action that they want to engage in, because this person was was very adamant that, you know, we couldn't respond to violence with violence that we needed to, if we, if, you know, that the ends did not justify the means that the ends were the means and that in order to like, make the better world that we wanted to see, we had to actively emulate those things that we wanted to see. I'm sympathetic to that position, right? This sort of, um, you know, uh, anarcho-pacifistic kind of approach, right? I'm sympathetic to that, but not where I'm at, you know, and not where most of the other people in that group are at, right? And eventually, like, that person came to the decision through conversations that were mediated um, by other members of that group that not only would they not stand in the way of anybody engaging in more direct kinds of anti-fascist action, but furthermore, they would not critique anyone for engaging in that type of action, and they would cover for people who are engaging that type of action and not say anything, not, uh, you know, not speak to the cops, not, you know, not share any information with anyone outside of the group whatsoever. And eventually this person kind of their their politics changed they became more radical and yeah i i i'm not going to share too many stories about that 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 particular affinity group but like they um got their hands uh uh in the soil so to speak they got they they were they were willing to take more colorful forms of, of direct action um over time but that's the type of like conflict resolutions where people like feel really sincerely like this is the way that you do anarchism this is the way that you live your politics is to be to be totally ethically consistent and and uh all this stuff without like really realizing, oh, like there's a rigidity here. There's a dogma here that I'm not addressing that I have to unlearn. Right. And so being able to like, again, it it, it, it sounds so elementary, but like being able to agree to disagree, being able to like decide as a group that we are willing to adopt a diversity of tactics was a way that we could continue to move forward and keep all of the members of the group without anybody leaving, without anybody having their feelings hurt, without anybody um, having their sincerity and their commitment to uh, to action questioned or, or delegitimized. So I would say that was like a successful, you know, kind of conflict resolution. That definitely sounds a lot more successful than a lot most other people liberal takes that i've seen crop up in radical circles that eventually get like alienated and pushed out and whatnot like the start of the story for example kind of reminded me of this image i saw online it was like a comment on like a a youtube video for like wolfenstein 2 Uh it was something along the lines of just like like, oh hello everyone i'm a centrist liberal Uh, or (laughs) I'm a centrist liberal. And let me say that the first Wolfenstein is too damn hard. And I can't get past that first level. Uh, the the enemies won't listen to my reasoning discourse on why their ideology is flawed and just shoot me to death. I have a lot of weapons at my disposal, but killing the Nazis would make me just as bad as them. Does anyone have any links on a walkthrough that would allow me to keep the moral high ground? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's hilarious. I've seen that comment float around in, in certain spaces. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it's it's not just anti-fascist spaces where like diversity of tactics and these kinds of conflicts like arise. Like like I mentioned earlier, I've done a lot of union organizing and, and interfaced um, and interacted with a lot of liberals. And it got to a point I, you know, I, I left Florida before the worst of it. I left Florida at the beginning mm-hmm. of the pandemic. But um, I was I've I've been teaching in Florida uh, for 
God, the almost overwhelming majority of my uh, teaching career has been teaching in in Florida. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of folks in unions were very reticent to take more grand types of action. Um, And it got to a point where there was a bill in the Florida legislature that was going to disband automatically any union that was not at 50% union membership in, in that given workplace, right? Just like automatically that that union would be destroyed. That doesn't even sound legal. What? I uh, Listen, it's fucking Florida. Not, you know, it's that's that's how Florida, they, that, that's a fair point. That's Florida. there it is. Listen, uh, I, I'm from Florida. I can shit on Florida. Nobody else can, but I can. But yeah, so, you know, they're going to they're going to destroy our, our unions and people are like, yeah, but we don't have the right to strike. So we can't do anything because Florida is a right to work state. And it's like, motherfuckers. OK, if you won't at least like, you know, go on strike, then then we can fucking march. You know, we can have a have a, um, you know, a, 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 a sit in day with our with our students. We can call in sick, you know, like it. there are ways to do this. And that's eventually what happened is like on a school day, a bunch of students and a bunch of teachers, you know, went not on strike, but did a demonstration. Right. We didn't teach. We invited our students students into the streets, went on a big long march. It was this huge thing. It was super um, like celebratory and positive. Um, I've talked about it elsewhere. Um, But like, that was like a real like conflict was people being like, yeah, they're going to destroy our union, but we can't do anything about it. And, and, and having to get like, having to kind of shake people by the shoulders and be like, motherfucker. (laughs) Like, I like the idea of being able to have options for people, but I've definitely have never understood the, the, like the concept of like the sanction strike. It's just like, right. Like the whole point of it's a strike. It's a strike. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like, you you think you're going to ever convince your employer to just be like, Oh, hey, we're going to go on strike. Oh, yeah, we're cool with that, man. Yeah, cool, bud. Go for it. <laughs> just, that's just that's just not how strikes work. You just do a strike. Yeah, it's very frustrating. But yeah, I mean, I would say those are some positive experiences. I, I Like I said, I, I, I've had more positive experiences. I've had a lot more negative experiences. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure um, if there's anything positive or redemptive or useful to really be gleaned from dwelling on some of those negative experiences. One thing I've been playing around with in my head is the idea of uh, setting the intention early on in a group formation, something where people involved agree ahead of time to participate in conflict resolution should the need arise. Have you been a part of any groups like that where conflict resolution was a shared value that people committed to? Yeah, surprisingly, the DSA, uh, at least our DSA chapter in Tallahassee, uh, was was committed to that principle. Now, did it play out that way? <laughs> that's 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 debatable. But was it a shared principle? Was it an expressed principle? Was it like written into um, bylaws? Was it a a um, a thing that like like there, were, there was a committee and people presented on and all that? You know, like like yes, like it was it was very clearly something that like was valued was centered well centered is the wrong word but was a, a it was valued and it was a facet of the organizing work that was going on so i do think that that is a really valuable thing i do think though that if you are going to espouse that you have to be consistent about it and um that 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 as as much as possible resolutions should be resolved in a timely manner because otherwise people start to like 
think that you're just paying lip service. Um, and for good reason, because if you're not actually doing anything about it, if you're espousing this value, but not acting in a way that's commensurate with the the value that you're espousing, something there's not like lining up. So yeah, I think that, you know, having those um, stated at the outset is like super duper valuable. But if you are going to do that, you have to be you know, like I said, consistently, yeah, consistently dedicated to that that principle. We'll get right back to our conversation with Pearson in a moment. But right now, it's time for a musical break. So here is Friends, You Matter by Bird Teeth. Hit it. Before we got room on our floor and even more room in our hearts. You matter, you 
Well, you know, I really appreciated what you said about centering relationships. I think that a lot of what we've seen around conflict arising has been essentially because relationships have been falling apart, like interpersonal relationships in a group. And I think a large part of what can lead to that tendency is burnout. So burnout is generally accepted to be a response to heightened and prolonged periods of stress. This is certainly something that organizers of all kinds are familiar with. It is especially pervasive in the social service industries as the machinations of the nonprofit industrial complex tend to grind well-meaning people into dust for the profits and continued existence of some faceless agency. What experiences of burnout have you had? And did you feel as though you had a community that understood what you were going through? Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, I think burnout is if you do this work for any amount of time, it's, it's necessarily going to happen. And I mean, I think you know, perhaps the most recent example uh, for me was was doing the podcast and and needing to like take a step back from it and and try and reassess um, how I'm engaging with creative projects that I that I uh, am, am, am interested in and that I want to pursue, but also kind of trying to take stock of like you know how things shift and how things change because I think that. You know, just as much as burnout can be the experience of of relationships breaking down, I think the opposite can also be true, and that burnout can come from making new relationships and not feeling the same affinity for a project or for a uh, an organization that you might have once felt. Right? You know, I, I say this with with some experience. Like uh, I used to not especially willingly. Um, but I, I used to organize uh, a little bit with the DSA uh, in Tallahassee because uh, one, it was one of the first uh, radical orgs that I, radical, semi-radical orgs that I encountered uh, when I moved to Tallahassee. Um, but also because like they were doing a lot of really good and cool and awesome work, right? Um, but at the same time, I also like uh, went to the DSA National Convention in 2019, and it was a fucking clusterfuck. They refused to pass a anti-fascist like like uh, agreement or proposal. They they chose they refused. Big sigh. To, I know, big sigh. They refused to um, pass a uh, proposal in solidarity with Palestine. It was just a nightmare, um, um, and people were just rude to each other. And you know, it, it became very clear that even though I had friends and comrades who were in the the local chapter of the DSA that I wanted nothing to do with the DSA anymore. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I've had lots of experiences like that where there's needing to step away from an organization and step into new work. Um, So I started organizing more directly after that with, um, a group called SJP or Students for Justice in Palestine. I started organizing more with a group called the CPE or the Center for Participant Education, which is like a, you know, by students, for students, sort of Skillshare or workshop centric kind of group that was on campus and that was uh, doing some really cool work in the community. Right. And so like, I think that 
uh, just as burnout can come from relationships breaking down, it can also come from recognizing, oh, I have this other this other commitment or this other interest or this other project that I want to be engaged with. And I only have so many hours in the day, right? And in order to not burn out and in order to be able to not spread myself too thin, I need to make some educated um, and hard choices about what is the best thing for me to do? How What is the best expenditure of my energy? How can I most contribute um, to my community in this particular given circumstance? The last thing I'll say is that I think that cycles of burnout happen constantly and that like there's a lot of machismo and I think a lot of emphasis on trying to fight through burnout, right? Like that you have to be militant and dedicated and you have to work super hard and the you know it, they don't call it a struggle for no reason. And like and to a certain extent that's true, I guess. But on the other side, you know, the adage that an, an empty glass can't fill another is totally true, right? Like we only have so much energy. We only have so much ability to like care for others. And if we're not caring for ourselves, if we're not taking time to um, find pleasure and, and find joy and find um, enrichment, uh, then how can we possibly hope to help others find joy and, and pleasure and enrichment? How can we other uh, possibly help to break, help people break their chains? Right. And so I think that like, we have to kind of take a step back and recognize that when burnout happens, that's not a personal failure. It's a natural, inevitable exchange of, of energy and of passion and of ability. And that in order to like stay dedicated to the revolutionary transformation of society long-term, it is necessary to take breaks, to take steps back every now and then, to take breaths, to to try and recalibrate. Like that's a valuable thing and it makes you a better and more capable revolutionary if you're able to focus on the things that bring you joy. Because if you are are, are coming into a space with joy in your heart and with uh, hope for a better tomorrow in your mind, then you're necessarily going to be able to contribute more to whatever project it is that you're working on than you would if you were burnt out because because you were, uh, you had your fingers in a million different pies, and you never said no to anyone. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like the uh, perspective of burnout not being something that's going to be avoided necessarily, but something that should be accounted for. Yeah, you know, I I think that that's another in the line of culture building around getting the group to sort of collectively accept that people are going to come and go, and that doesn't mean that they're necessarily leaving the community just because they step back from a project or an affinity group or something. And it's not like once you leave, you can't come back kind of stuff. I think young radicals, people who are really excited, want to say yes to everything. And I love that energy. I think it's fucking awesome, right? But I've, like I said, at the top of this conversation, have been doing this for a really long time. Um, and I've, I don't want to like, you know, toot my own horn by any stretch of the imagination, but I've been doing it for a long time because of the fact that I've started to recognize that there are these ebbs and flows, there are these waves and that like, you know, it's okay to like take time for yourself. It's okay to rest. It's okay to rejuvenate. It's okay to um, recalibrate. And I think that like, I think that people uh, who are really, really, really excited and who want to be involved and really are passionate about this new thing that they've discovered, this this new way of understanding the world, they really want to to 
change the world. And that's a beautiful, wonderful, vital thing that that we have to hold on to. But I think that it can be really, really, really easy to, to kind of overcorrect and try to change everything at once rather than focusing meaningfully on small, direct ways that you can make a difference in your community or in your personal life, right? Like those things are still valuable and are still worthy of, of doing. Um, and even if they aren't grand or sexy or or inflammatory, they are still like necessary, right? Like the, the revolution is not going to happen if we're not taking care of each other. And if we're not taking care of uh, ourselves, then we certainly can't take care of each other. So I think that like, yeah, uh, the idea that like burnout is not a thing that can be avoided. It's a thing that has to be accounted for as a very elegant way of of summarizing that thought. Yeah. We've always tried to tell people coming in and onboarding into our groups that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Totally. Totally. And try and give them try and give them that download. But you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. And some people are just, you know, designed that way where they take on too much and, you know, it's hard to see sometimes when they burn out so hard that they step back and, and can't come back. Yeah. Currently in one of our small groups within our mutual aid network here, we're reading the book Overcoming Burnout by Nicole Rose of the Solidarity Apothecary. And they've got a actually a sister podcast on the Channel Zero network as well, Frontline Herbalism. Although we've just started the book and haven't read through the entire thing, it's been making us think about what sort of culture setting we can do around getting people to realize when burnout is happening, because oftentimes people don't even realize that that's what's going on. Totally. And being able to take a step back or do whatever they need to do to overcome that period and get back to a healthy place. We want to make sure that this process is collectivized as much as possible so people don't feel isolated and alone while going through something that we all experience. Hopefully just reading this book as a group can lend some ideas for us to carry into the organization as a whole. What ways do you think there are for making the process of recognizing and overcoming burnout more of a collective process? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a, such a good question. Um, I mean, I, I do think that at the end of the day, it comes down to relationships. It comes down to knowing people and not just hanging out with people. Like, I, I can, cannot tell you the amount of times um, that I have tried to reach out to people to hang out with them outside of organizing spaces and been told, oh, no, I'm too busy or I'm doing this thing or I have I don't have the time, right? And like, that's fine. I get it. That's that people are busy. I'm fucking busy as hell right now. But at the same time, right? I think that meeting each other and seeing how we behave and how we conduct ourselves outside of those kinds of, of spaces where you're working on a, a community project or when you are trying to like go to a protest, but just like sitting on the couch and shooting the shit or getting a pizza together or going out for a drink or whatever it might be, getting getting coffee with comrades, whatever it might be, right? Like at the end of the day, having that kind of relationship where you know people on an interpersonal level and aren't just solely interacting with them in those community organizing spaces means that you have an affinity that goes beyond comradeship, which I think is is vital. But these, are, these folks are actually your friends, you know? And as friends, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to be like, listen, brother, I I've noticed that you're having a hard time uh, and and I think that it might be might might be a good idea to maybe just like take a break, you know, and and 
calm down or or like take a step back or like take a smoke break or like I know that you enjoy gardening. Can I come can I come over to your garden? Do you want to go on a hike? The the nice crisp fall weather is is out. Let's go walk around in nature and remember the things that we're fighting for, right? Having those kinds of conversations and being able to recognize because you have a close personal relationship with people is I think one of the the real best ways to do this. And again, like I hate to be the person who's just like, yeah, just have good relationships with people because having good relationships with people is exhausting and it's so hard um, and it's difficult and it's scary and it requires you to be vulnerable um, and it requires you to give a shit and it requires you to maybe get hurt in that process. But I think that it's worth it if it were able to like meet each other where we're at and, and, and um, have heart to hearts and be like, Hey, during that meeting, you were coming off like really hardcore. And and I just wanted to know like what's going on, like where your mind's at. Um, and you might like by having those kinds of conversations, you might find out, oh, like I'm really worried about my job or I'm not, I'm not able to like, you know, pay the rent this month or whatever it might be. Right. And then you can kind of come up alongside them and be like, okay, well, me and Tommy and Sue, we, you know, have this like, uh, like we have this disposable income. So when don't we throw you like a couple bucks and and maybe that can um, help you make your your budget for the week or whatever it might be, right? And being able to have those kinds of relationships where you really do truly know each other and and can recognize when those points of of rupture or of disruption are occurring, I think is is the best antidote to addressing burnout as a as a collective rather than just um, recognizing it in yourself because uh, it can be so difficult to recognize it in yourself. I've had to do a lot of work on myself to try and figure those things out, and I'm terrible at it. Like just, I'm so bad at it. Like it's like the number one thing that I need help with in therapy is like, when, when am I, when am I overstretched? When am I, when am I destroying and eroding what little bit of sanity that I have left? Cause it's hard. And so having those, those relationships, I think is, is just again, really critical. Can't, can't stress it enough. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that also would help keep you accountable to not going too far, because if you're just wrapped up in your own mind, it's easy to get into that thinking of like, well, it's not. I mean, it's true. Like everything is so intense. There's climate catastrophe. There's yeah, shit capitalism, sucks. There's, there's just so much. So it's easy to be like, well, I need to be doing I need to like sleep three hours and the rest <laughs> of my day is dedicated to the revolution. And having friends, having relationships, I think, is naturally going to pull you back from that, that more extreme state of like uh, giving yourself over to to all of it too much. Yeah. Play some fucking D&D, like, you know, <laughs> go for a walk, um, yeah. you know, play in the garden, um, you know, like hang out with your niece or nephew or like, you know. Whatever it, whatever it is that brings you joy, like you got to do that shit or, or you're going to lose sight of like what the whole point is, right? The whole point is not to like just fight the oppressors and, and you know, struggle and, and do violence to those who have done violence to us. Like the whole point, the end goal is to, to live lives that are free and joyful and, you know, that are, are freed of repression and, 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 and exploitation. And I think that if we aren't constantly putting into ourselves and giving ourselves the opportunities to feel joy and to feel the bliss and the relief of, of relationships and of connections then we're going to lose sight of what it is we're fighting for in the first place. Yeah. Well, that's probably something that networks and collectives and groups should think about 
you know, scheduling into their time is something that's not organizing, something that's not work, something that's just, hey, let's get together and watch a movie. Something potlucks, watching movies, reading yeah. books, you know. Everybody yeah. talks about like, oh, we're gonna we're do not a book talking club. business. <laughs> yeah, but not yeah, not doing the fucking work, you know, like the work will keep. God knows. Uh like you just said, there's so much shit that needs to get done. Um but like don't and, and like like uh, you know, so many book clubs are like, oh, we need to read theory, blah blah blah. And like that's fine. I love theory. I I've, I've shat on theory a lot on, on coffee with comrades, but I've also like, I love theory. I think it's, I'm a nerd. I enjoy reading it, but I also think like, don't do that. Like read fiction, right? Uh, like read science fiction or fantasy books with each other or, you know, watch fucking cool movies together. Like those are things that can still be really awesome opportunities for cultivating conversation um, for creating the space for affinity, but also they can still cult, they, they can still uh, generate revolutionary conversations because we're all radicals engaged in conversation and it inevitably comes up. Right. Um, but Random it doesn't have plug, to be but for those who haven't read it or listened to it on their audiobook version. Check out after the revolution by Robert Evans. The book, but good. So like we said at the top of the show, you recently announced that you will no longer be recording episodes of Coffee with Comrades. And I must say that I'm glad you made that decision and I'm glad you felt you could make that decision to put yourself in a healthier space. I also must say that as we started out in this media landscape, your podcast definitely gave us hope for the future and directly inspired us to begin our own podcast venture to share our stories and experiences here in rural Washington with people around the world. We're incredibly grateful for the conversations and content you created over your few years doing Coffee with Comrades and look forward to working with you at Channel Zero Network and reading your future work. What benefits do you think that the Channel Zero Network brings to the podcasts who are a part of it? And what do you hope to see the collective accomplish in the coming months and years? Well, well, thank you uh, so much for the kind words. I I sincerely do appreciate it. Uh, It's been really, really melancholic, but also really affirming to hear from folks who, who, like the podcast or who it touched or who who got something out of it. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I got to do that and got to uh, participate in that. Um, and I'm glad that I get to pass the proverbial Molotov to y'all to continue carrying it. That said, to answer your question, I think the season's fucking great. Um, I, I think that it's a really vital resource. Um, I think that the affinity in that group is is really cool. I don't think that I would have gotten started doing Coffee with Comrades if it wasn't for like the final straw or it's going down or um, the soul cast, you know, all these different shows that I really liked that I was inspired by, you know. And so I think that um, the work goes on and and I'm really excited to see um, all the awesome shows uh, and the different episodes that keep coming out uh, week after week after week. Um, As far as what I hope to see um, the collective accomplish in the coming months and years, um, more than anything, I think it's just like to keep radical media alive. And I, I think that, especially post pandemic, there has been this huge resurgence, especially in anarchist milieus of people who are hosting big conferences or who are doing uh, book fairs or who are um, engaging in some kind of media specific work. Um, And it's really, really encouraging to see. And it's really, really 
uh, affirming to see this this flourishing of a of a you know so-called anarchic culture. It's really humbling to have gotten to um, participate in that and and uh, to hopefully continue to participate in it. I think I see the CZN as being a really critical voice for the left, especially the anti-authoritarian left, the the anarchist or, or autonomous left. And I, I think that in the years ahead, what I hope to see it, it do is grow to be a, a very small facet of a much larger anarchic culture. I think that we are increasingly seeing that with the proliferation of not just theoretical or historical or social texts, but with creative texts as well. Um, you know, you shouted out after the revolution. I think that's an excellent example of a, of a unapologetically like anarchic uh, society in uh, Rolling Fuck. You know, I, I you, you've got uh, people like Margaret Killjoy, you've got people like Adrian Marie Brown, um, all these wonderful folks who are putting together stories of of hope and of revolution and of transformation. And I think that you know, I I came to to, to radical politics through two avenues: through uh, actually reading the Bible and finding out that it, it was nothing like what my parents told me it was like. And punk music, right? And I think that art in particular has a real role to play. I don't think art is going to win the revolution by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think that it inspires people. It gives people a reason to fight and it reminds us um, that there's beauty in the world and that it's worth living for and it's worth uh, fighting for. And so I, I, my hope for this easy end more than anything is for it to, to, like I said, grow to be a very grow, but for it to, to grow to the extent that it is only a very small part of a much larger culture of radio shows, podcasts, uh, art, uh, like visual art, uh, art galleries, music, media collectives, right? I want it to be a small part of a much larger whole. That would be I my, more podcasts, my hope I for want it. more CZNs of podcasts. Yes. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, we can't wait to work with you on some of those projects. Art is truly important and powerful. For example, we here have had real material gains and vital regional connections made from putting out this small podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We have to have you back again sometime soon. Yeah, I would love that. Um, Molotov now is probably the coolest name for a podcast. Uh, And as soon as I remember when um, uh, y'all's name came up uh, on the CZN listserv and people were like yeah molotov now like democracy now that's so fucking cool um so yeah it's great love to hear it love to see it and uh yeah thanks for having me it's been a pleasure and an honor i'm really glad we got to chat about this stuff i think you know conversations about conflict resolution and burnout and and media are really integral and really vital and um i hope that this podcast reaches um folks and gives them something to consider when they are navigating those those questions of like dealing with conflict or or trying to recognize whether or not they're in a cycle of burnout so yeah this has been fun y'all and i'm i'm glad we can make it happen and i hope you both have a uh, lovely evening and and many more episodes of Molotov now. Hell yeah. Thank you, Pearson. Yeah, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. 
Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you would like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Molotov Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. Don't forget, if you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AO1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. Thank you. We want to give a shout out to our friends at the South Florida Anti-Repression Committee, who have launched a solidarity campaign for two individuals facing 12 years for an alleged graffiti attack on a fake Christian anti-choice clinic that does not provide any reproductive care. This federal overreach and use of the FACE Act an act meant to protect people visiting reproductive clinics from harassment is unprecedented. To support this solidarity campaign, please visit bit.ly backslash free our fighters. We would like to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more about their project, their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever, thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity, as many activists are closing their accounts for bluer skies, as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD socials. Join at collectiva.social and follow us and other online activists on the decentralized federated internet. Shehalish River Mutual Aid Network is hosting a fundraiser for their weekly meals with Food Not Bombs. To donate, visit linktree backslash crmutualaidnet. The Communique is looking for artists and upcoming event submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry. We would also like to say thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio on our show notes. And of course, thank you to the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. We are proud to be members of a network that creates and shares leading critical analysis, news, and actions from an anarchist perspective. Remember to check out Sabo Media's website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today. At Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Communique, the Sabo Tours, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay new to your cats and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off. Go, 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 go.